another episode of Pop for Good, a podcast where we learn about what's doing there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the world, why they care, what we can do, and what's importantly, what you, the listeners, can do. Pop for Good is produced and edited by Random Productions, which is me. So if you like how we sound, or are thinking about starting a podcast, reach out to me. I'm easy to find. Pod for Good can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy what we do here, or you enjoy the guests we have on, please make sure to subscribe and share this episode on social media. I am your chief philanthropod and class now for justice. If the Constitution's so great, why do they have to immediately amend it? Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod and class clown for justice. Dun 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 dun. Chris Miller. And this episode, we are talking with Katie Dilks, the executive director of the Oklahoma Access to Justice Foundation. We talked to Katie about Oklahoma Access to Justice, the difficulty of navigating civil courts without a lawyer, and why she thinks the French legal system is better than the American one. Enjoy, everybody. Katie, welcome to Pop for Good. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So for our listeners, we are recording this on Monday, January 30th. It's sort of ice pelted this morning. Thundersleet. Thundersleet, which I always thought sleet had to be more like, I don't know, not pellet sized, but we can, we don't have to debate that here, but it's very cold. It's very cold in Tulsa today. And, but luckily we're doing these remote anyway, so we didn't have to go somewhere because I tried driving today. I can tell you Tulsa drivers, not, not the best at this. So in their defense, I couldn't even see what lane I was in. So I could just, you sort of just winged it. Yep. But so Katie, you are the ED of the Oklahoma Access to Justice organization, but can you real briefly just give us give us that 30-second pitch of your organization? Sure. So the Oklahoma Access to Justice Foundation is focused on increasing meaningful participation in a fair and accessible civil justice system. So if we sort of take that one piece at a time, we believe that participation in a justice system is meaningful when people can understand the system, understand the laws that undergird it, understand the court's the words that are being used in those courts, things like that, but also have the tools they need to access that system, whether that is a lawyer or sufficient information to do the work they need to do without the assistance of a lawyer. Um, so the, the fair and accessible piece of it is really where we focus on making sure that our structural systems are fair, that our laws that people use in the civil justice system are fair, but also that we literally build our legal system, our courts, our legal profession in a way that is uh, actually usable for the people who need it, not just corporations and people with a lot of money. So I, I, feel, I feel like people who are, who are either in the social justice space or are on the side of caring about issues that don't affect them know about the fact that we need like lots of reforms in our criminal justice system. Right, but they might not necessarily know all about the problems in the other, the other, the huge other wing yeah. of our justice system. So, can you give us a couple examples of what would be here yeah. versus there? Yep. I joke that the civil justice system is everything you need the courts for that's not related to getting arrested. So, again, people have a pretty good sense of of what happens on the criminal justice side of thing, and we are lucky in Oklahoma, I think, to have a huge number of organizations that have been doing really phenomenal work in that reform space for many years at this point. People need the courts for things that impact their daily lives all the time. So we're talking about family law, divorce, custody, guardianship, um, anything that sort of intersects with that relationship between parents and kids. 
housing. So we've been doing a lot of work around the eviction crisis, particularly here in Tulsa, but also foreclosure and ownership issues. What happens when people die, estate, probate, wills, trusts, all of those things fall on the civil justice side. Just sort of old-fashioned disputes between neighbors and contract disputes, that's all civil justice. And then there's also some more spaces, especially this is sort of related to the eviction space, debt collection and garnishment. So a large part of our state court system in Oklahoma and across the country over the past 20 years has really shifted to a model of corporations using our state courts to sue individual, generally poor people for money, either through eviction or debt collection. Well, and it it seems that a lot of those corporations rely on the ignorance of the people that they're suing. 100%. Um, Right. They, the, and I know, yep. The way that model works, the only way that model makes money is it presumes that people being sued won't actually come to court or won't actually fight it. So it's sort of like a commonly known secret in the legal side of things that if you're sued for debt collection, even if you owe that debt, right? Like it's an old credit card bill or an old medical bill or something like that. If somebody actually bothers to bring you to court, If you show up, especially if you show up with a lawyer, it's probably getting dismissed. The case will probably just get fully dismissed. If it's not dismissed, the next best thing is you can probably work out a payment plan because time is money for the lawyers who are bringing those cases, who are bringing those lawsuits, and they only work because they bring them in volume and can process them incredibly quickly. And they can only process them incredibly quickly because people don't understand the system. They're intimidated. And so they don't even bother to show up to court. Well, and speaking of, I mean, there's, I think most people know that with legal cases, uh, with criminal cases, there is a right to representation. But in civil cases, there's no right to representation. Yeah, generally speaking, there's not. There's a couple of small areas. For example, if there is an issue of child abuse and neglect, often there are spaces where the kid is guaranteed an attorney, or in some cases now, the parents might be guaranteed an attorney as well. But that's about it when we're talking about things that, again, can result in somebody experiencing homelessness, result in the destruction of someone's family. If we're talking about our immigration court system, so that's federal, but it's still related, something that could result in your removal from this country, like the entire upending of your life, you're not guaranteed an attorney. I keep remember. I keep coming up with a question and forgetting that question uh, <laughs> while you're answering, because I'm trying to listen to the answer. <laughs> Of the previous question, but so as someone who is recently a homeowner, mm-hmm. I've now discovered what I feel is the most corrupt system in the universe, which is contractors. Oh, is it? And I, didn't ha- I haven't even had any yet. It's just stories from friends. Mm-hmm. And is 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 this? where the, if you could even get the contractor to show up for said court date is like, is that where these sort of disputes yes. go? So if you need to All sue right. your contractor over some sort of breach of contract, you would do that through our civil court system. Probably small claims, if we're talking sort of more specifically, small claims is generally where cases with values under $10,000 go that are not going to be like a really robust, drawn out sort of, when we think traditionally about like, how lawyers practice on TV, right? Where it's a big, long case and you're going to argue in front of a jury, all that stuff. That's not how the vast majority of cases that actually impact people work. 
So actually everything I've mentioned, debt collection and eviction, both work through our small claim systems because the amount that is in controversy is is so low. Is this where some of those apps were working on where you could like have the app, like appeal your parking ticket mm-hmm. and all is that, is, was that so th- through that small claims court and that like those courts have the ability to, I guess, interact, like were those apps ac- acting as the lawyers for those people? Is that how that worked? Not quite because you're not allowed to do that because then it's called the unauthorized practice of law and lawyers have some very strict rules mm-hmm. around that. But what I think those apps generally do try to do is connect people with legal information. So the debate over unauthorized practice of law always boils down to legal information versus legal advice. Only a lawyer can give legal advice, which is the analogy a lot of people use is I'm allowed to tell you as an attorney the rules of the game. If you've never played Monopoly before, I can tell you the rules of the game. I can go through the entire rule book with you. I can give you the layout of the board. I can tell you how the pieces move. What I can't do is look at the properties that you own, look at the dice that you just rolled and tell you what you should do because that crosses the line into advice specific to your situation. Huh, okay. So you can provide general advice like, hey, uh, I really think that a good strategy is to go after the railroads, but you couldn't give specific advice for somebody's specific situation. And I think even there, right, being a a cautious (laughs) attorney, I probably wouldn't use the word (laughs) advice or strategy, right? I would say research has found that players who acquire the railroads early have a better like marker of success or something like that, right? Yeah. Lawyers are jerks, you guys. That's really what a lot of this boils down to is lawyers have built like a very specific special situation that works really well for them to make money in it. And a piece of that is by making it often intentionally confusing as a gatekeeping mechanism to require you to have a lawyer to navigate it. So you have to pay a lawyer. Oh my God. Lawyers are, they're they're just like the Intuit company, the company that owns uh, QuickBooks and TurboTax and the sons of bitches. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I would like to say that sons of bitches does not refer to one, our sponsor, Tallgrass Estate Planning, (laughs) and any lawyers I may know personally. No, I was. So, I also um, like to say that as someone who went to law school and has worked with lawyers for the vast majority of my career, hashtag not all lawyers, right? There are a lot of lawyers yeah. that, that are out here trying to make the world a better place and trying to make sure that people have genuine, meaningful access to a system that works for everybody. It's when we sort of pan back and look at the whole system and recognize the ways in which it has just been like, Frankenstein together over the years and how confusing it's been. Another example, honestly, I can give you guys is, again, in eviction, right? So eviction happens in small claims. The reason it happens in small claims is because small claims is supposed to be the people's court. You're not supposed to need an attorney to navigate small claims. It's supposed to be easy. It has lower standards, evidence, all these things. And that was intentional because back in like the 60s and 70s, when we were rewriting our landlord-tenant laws in Oklahoma, um, most landlords didn't use attorneys when they needed to evict somebody, right? Most of our landlords at that point were small business owners, were mom and pops. They had a few properties. They weren't massive corporations. So fast forward now, the vast majority of our evictions in Oklahoma and particularly in Tulsa are filed by large corporations who own hundreds, if not thousands of properties. 
um, our our language that is required to tell someone that they are being sued and to tell them that they have to come to court for this lawsuit for an eviction. We're written in the law. We're written in the statutes in Oklahoma in 1971. So our affidavit and our summons were statutorily provided language in 1971. And it is the most impossible to understand legalese that I've ever seen in my life. Like it is nearly impossible for somebody who went to law school to read and understand on first pass. So if you are somebody who is late on their rent, reads at an average literacy level for an Oklahoman, which is sixth or seventh grade, and you get this thing that says the herein named plaintiff is directed to immediately relinquish said property, but like it, no, you have no idea what it means. And it's on a scary piece of paper. So a lot of the work that we're looking at sort of, again, structurally, before we even get to whether or not people have access to attorney, is can we just make sure that the paperwork that you get from the court is something that you can read and understand? Advocacy with changing those laws part of what you do? It is. So I would say like our housing justice space in particular is one of the best models of this sort of like working at different levels strategy. So we don't do direct legal representation. We're a super tiny nonprofit. It's literally like two staff of three interns. So we don't have the capacity to like be the lawyers for people, but we do have the capacity to be experts and advocates and conveners and collaborators and bring people and ideas together. So here in Tulsa, that means for three years now, we've been delighted to work with our friends over at Housing Solutions. And we're part of their effort in building the Landlord's Unit Resource Center, which does a lot of this work of trying to demystify the system, provide access, make sure people have understanding and resources to navigate the court process. We've also been working at several levels, basically anybody who will listen to me talk about it, advocating for what's called a right to counsel, which would guarantee tenants facing eviction through representation by an attorney. Long way to go on that, but it's an important conversation to have. And there's definitely some interest here in Tulsa, given our historic conviction rates. And then finally, we do work, again, with Housing Solutions and others in a coalition to try to change some of the laws at the state level, because all of our landlord-tenant laws are written in state at the state legislature. And we actually have a bill filed this year. John Waldron is carrying a bill that would require the courts to provide that affidavit and that summons in plain language, among some other sort of more substantive reforms. But that's one that's just purely court access. And I don't know the numbers on this, but nationally, a lot of people with law degrees end up going into public office at some time or another. Some mm-hmm. of them, they usually either have law degrees or business degrees, occasionally medical degrees. But the law is so massive. Like, is this one of those things where because legislators are lawyers, they almost have a conflict they can't even comprehend about trying to make the legal system easier. I will say that part of our problem in Oklahoma is actually the other way. I don't think we have enough lawyer legislators. It used to be a much more common profession. I don't. It used to be a much more common profession in our state legislature. And over the years, the number has really gone down. And that's partly because ours is a part-time legislature, right? Like it's hard to find a job that lets you just sort of disappear for three months out of the year, four months out of the year. Um, 
it's really challenging to maintain an active law practice. You have to have a really understanding partner or firm that will sort of carry your workload while you're busy in Oklahoma City. And as our as the time expectations on legislators have increased, I think it has made it increasingly difficult for folks from a variety of professions, but lawyers being one of them, to make that time to serve in the legislature. So we're down to maybe a dozen across the House and Senate who are actually attorneys. What we actually, so every fall we do something called the Access to Justice Summit, which is a one-day virtual conference, just bringing together people across the state to learn more about a lot of these issues. And this year, one of our panels was sort of a fireside chat with Emily Virgin and Brent Howard. So we're House Minority Leader and current chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, who are both lawyers, talking about their experience as lawyer legislators, what some of these challenges are in balancing it, but also what they think they bring to it. And both of them said they have, it's really common, especially if anything sort of touches on the courts or people's experience with it, for their colleagues to come to them and be like, can you tell me what this actually means? Can you tell me how this would actually play out and give that sort of expertise and feedback? And so I think in some ways we could write better laws, honestly, if we had more lawyers in the legislature. Maybe not in Congress, I mean, right? If sense. we go to the national level, I think the balance <laughs> yeah. shifts, but. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and I think it can help because you always want to balance, but especially for professions that are going to be more directly, more continuously impacted by by the laws being passed mm-hmm. and having people there that can quickly identify sort of the unintended consequences right. or in some cases intended yes barely hidden consequences, <laughs> <Intended> consequences. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i can see i can certainly see the value of that especially when you're talking about so many of the issues within our legal system and problems that they have i mean once again jesse and my our experiences learning and and about a lot of the issues with the court systems, issues with the bail system, court fines, everything else that goes into it and how, I mean, you hear it called the the cost of being poor. And it sounds like that similarly would apply to the civil system that, that the, it's unfortunately much easier to stay poor than it is to get out of poor and the being poor and the legal system sort of contributes to that. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think so, Another project that I thought la- that we did last year that I thought was really fun, fun. I'm not sure I'm like the most fun person at a party when I'm just like, let me tell you about eviction. But, you know, we all have our interests. Great trivia. Our podcast <laughs> listeners should know that about you. Thank so. you. <laughs> so we did this summer, we did a really interesting study of our eviction courts. So our intern over the summer, was an outstanding law student at OU, went and observed eviction court across nine different counties and watched over 500 eviction proceedings, saw a really depressing number of people lose their homes, but really focused on some of the similarities and differences county to county. And it was a fascinating snapshot, right? So I think so often we think about a lot of sort of systemic reforms, often with a pretty urban bias. I come from an education policy background and I felt like I was constantly sort of railing against people who had this like really strong urban bias when we're talking about education reform. And I'm like, you do know that rural schools are fundamentally different and have very different resources at their disposal. And a competitive grant process systematically, like, systematically disadvantages them. And they're like, what are you talking about, Katie? I'm like, 
okay, but let's just rewrite this entire process. Um, and that has, that happens a lot when we talk about our court system as well, right? Like the process of a judge out in Custer County who manages a docket that has eight kinds of different cases in a day runs a very different system and interacts with the people in front of their bench very differently than the judge here in Tulsa or the judges in Oklahoma County who manage those eviction dockets with 100 or 200 cases in a day that are all eviction and often all brought by corporations and often all represented by attorneys. So looking really into how those systems play differently, urban to rural, what the resources are, what the consistent challenges are, and how we can create resources, judicial training, advice, and just like stakeholder engagement to make that process more consistent so you're not facing a fundamentally different legal process based on where you live, I think is a really important thing for us to look at. So we're going to be tackling that model again this summer, but looking at debt collection, which is one of those issues when we're talking about things that keep poor people poor, impacts way more people than folks generally think of because it's such a hidden thing, right? Addiction and homelessness becomes at some point pretty visible. Debt collection and wage garnishment is sort of by definition invisible because you're not usually running around like showing your pay stub to somebody and be like, look, my wages are getting garnished. So you, you, know, you mentioned that you went to law school. If you went to law school and you graduated law school, you, we can call you a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. If you have to, I guess. Yes. Um, I never practiced. I never actually it? had clients. Like I took the bar, but I was in active status immediately. I really tried to sort of disclaim no, that. Like, law school's to law school. You got through <laughs> it. I'm, I, you know, I respect that. Like I thought about it and I was like, you know what? No, I'm, I'd be terrible at it or I'd be great at it and make no money at it. And those are two different things. And yeah. <laughs> also an option. Yes. <laughs> but so th- there's so many injustices in our legal system. What, what made you care about this one specifically? Oh boy, that's a great question. So like I said, my I really came to this work, I think academically through a lens on education. So my dad was a high school teacher for a long time. My sister now has been an elementary school teacher for 13 years. That makes me feel really old. My mom worked in early childhood education and then at a community action agency and sort of doing family support work. So I, I had a lens on a lot of our social challenges that often people want our systems to be able to fix and also got to see the ways in which those systems just inherently cannot fix them, right? Our schools cannot fix poverty. I think we've wanted that for 50 years and it's been shown to be a falsehood for 50 years. And so it gave me growing up and going through school, I think a really intersectional lens on a lot of the challenges that people face and how people don't live their lives in silos. They don't experience challenges in silos. And so when I was thinking about, for just a little personal narrative, I actually did two years of a PhD program in cognitive psychology, thinking that I was going to be a research academic until I pretty much immediately realized that I do not have the sort of constitutional disposition to be a research academic. I really love being a generalist and learning and not focusing on one narrow thing. So in thinking about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go, uh, I was always interested in systems. 
and how we build systems that are trying to tackle sort of big, messy social problems. And against that, that lens that they had initially was on education. So I decided to go to grad school for law school, but also for a master's in public policy, really with the intention of learning sort of these two different languages that we can use to look at our systems, right? Like we can build better laws if you understand the quantitative policy-driven approach to how things work, but also you understand how to craft a law in a way where the words mean what you want them to mean and will be implemented in a way that would actually be helpful. Um, so I went through law school sort of with that focus. I graduated in 2009 into the worst job market for lawyers in a generation. And so I sort of immediately turned around and had the good luck to be able to go back to my alma mater and work in our public interest career services office for almost a decade, where I got to take that sort of systems lens and that way of like, all of these things are messy and intersectional and feed each other. But there's also things we can do at so many different levels to try to make them better and just got to support students in exploring paths to get there. And it was, I think that really is what got me to where I am now, because I had hundreds of students over nine years who wanted to do everything from post-conflict restoration, international human rights work in sub-Saharan Africa, to domestic violence advocacy in the courts, to environmental justice in the Gulf, to being a public defender, to like everything. And so putting that together in sort of my big systems brain just gave me all of these layers on how all these systems connect or don't, right? Or often are working in silos, even though, again, that's not how people experience their lives. So having the opportunity to come do this work in Oklahoma in a space where my job is to have the biggest view possible and look for these connections and look for these systems and try to make it intersectional, I think was just this really natural outgrowth of all of the experiences I've had before in many ways. So that's a really long answer to that question. <laughs> Listen, you, you took us through the process of it. You said you're a process person, so we got it. And, we, I am and a honestly, person. most people are not good right. at answering that question. So I, you know, it's you, you, you know why. Like some people deep down know why they're doing what they're doing, but most people aren't able to articulate that well and literally take you through like how you got to that point. So that was actually one of the best answers we've ever gotten on that question. I also spent nine years helping people write cover letters. So like literally, it was like part of my job is <laughs> like, how do you tell your why and your story? God, I hate cover letters. I kind of, so the urban versus rural. <laughs> and it got me thinking with judges that do have to deal with so many different types of cases and also probably lawyers in those same courts that do the same thing. With With laws being as convoluted as they are, I mean, how is it possible for a judge or a lawyer to to understand the breadth of law to be able to effectively, you know, preside over that? Phenomenal question. It's tough, right? I think it's something where we could always use additional supports and judicial education opportunities for particular rural judges, a sort of ethical and professional obligation of lawyers, including judges, is continuing education. That's baked in. 
So in Oklahoma, right, you have to do 12 hours of continuing legal education every year. That's true for judges as well. And that's where I think a lot of folks really lean into like, oh, I'm going to, you know, switch over to the family docket this year. I better brush up on my family law and um, make sure that I know what I'm doing. And it's something where like the relationship between lawyers and judges is trying to go up the exact phrase I want here, sort of symbiotic, where it is on the lawyers to be continually educating judges in their cases, right? So if you're filing a motion, you have to include in that motion the law that you're relying on. You're sort of pointing the judge in the direction for like the authority and information that they should be looking. But that assumes a lawyer. So when we're talking about the 60% plus in some areas of law, 80% plus of cases that are being handled without a lawyer, all of a sudden, the only person who could possibly have that information is the judge. And they have to switch into this mindset of needing to be the expert, needing to manage their courtroom, and needing to like shepherd these people through a process without stepping over that line into advice because judges can't give advice either, right? They have to be neutral. Um, and it's really hard. Well, and, and in a scenario where only one person has a lawyer, if that lawyer is the one that's providing the precedence and the laws cited without a rebuttal of any kind, then it, it certainly stacks the deck. Unless the judge happens sure to be an does. expert in that field, they're probably going to rely on what that lawyer says. So, and I can give you another, sorry that all my examples are eviction. I really need to come some more, but we've done so much work on eviction over the past couple of years. So uh, there, we, we learned recently about this really interesting project out of Dallas, where they've been really aggressively trying to represent as many tenants as humanly possible in court. Like it's not an official right to counsel program. It's just this sort of nonprofit pop-up that has been really going after this as as a model to disrupt the profit motive of landlords who are sort of exploiting the the eviction court system. And uh, they have found that basically in any case, they don't need to know the background of the case ahead of time. They can walk in and look for like five common mistakes that landlords and landlord attorneys usually make, right? There's either improper service, they didn't tell people about the court date in the right way, they don't actually have their evidence with them. They don't actually have a ledger showing that people owe the rent. They're not properly registered with the Secretary of State. And so they don't actually have the ability to properly file a lawsuit at that point. Any of these issues, they have found that in 80% of their cases, at least one of these things is wrong. And so they can get a dismissal or a continuance or something, right? They can sort of get a delay. The only way a tenant would even know to make one of those arguments is if they have a lawyer on their side to make this argument, right? Asking somebody who has experienced whatever crisis that has led them to the point where they are facing potential eviction and asking them to note that they should go look up their landlord, figure out the actual corporate name of their landlord, and then look it up on the Secretary of State's website to see if they're in good standing and then to know that if they're not in good standing, that means they don't have the ability to properly bring a lawsuit under state law. It's absurd. No one will do that, right? Like that is not a realistic expectation on any normal human. 
And when we have the system, like you said, that there's only a lawyer on one side and it's the side with more sort of institutional and systemic power, then yeah, people just get railroaded every day when they shouldn't be because something is structurally wrong in the case. So, okay. Unless we empower judges to be active on it, there's nothing to do. That's what I was going to say. So if on the criminal side, if is it our constitution that you should have representation, even though if you're poor, most of the time that representation is overworked and exhausted on this other side where most of the time it's so small and it's people who are also unable to afford lawyers. Why? I mean, I, I understand why it hasn't happened yet, but is one of the policy like options out there giving judges the ability to help the person without the lawyer or penalizing the people who are coming to court with wrong documents? Right. So, right. It's a really good question of, it's sort of this like existential question for the judiciary of how much can a judge be an independent lender, right? How appropriate is it? And individual judges will take different reads on this, right? So there was a judge up in Rogers County who recently retired who sat on their small movement and would run pretty full trials for all evictions. Like he would call the landlord and the tenant up the bench and be like, all right, landlord, prove your case. Show me your ledger. Like walk it through a process and then, you know, would ask the tenant, did you owe rent? But also, did you get this notice? Did you actually know? Like, usually if you're in court, then you got the notice because how else would you know to be there? But actually make people walk through like a legitimate balanced process. Of course, he could only do that because he had like maximum 30 cases in a day and that would be a really heavy day. And compare that with Oklahoma County literally has seen days with 300 cases on their docket. Like that's not, if you have less than two minutes per case, there's no way that you can run a, a sort of aggressive independent finding process in your courtroom with that volume. And can we but use it's the, also yeah. this like question just for the, the attitude and opinion of the judge of whether that's even appropriate and something they should do. This is maybe going back to, I don't remember if it was AP government or what class it was. But it was the U.S. legal system versus some European, including mm-hmm. the English legal system of the U.S. version of adversarial system versus the English. I can't remember what the title was, but the specifically in every case, it is the court's mandate to find the truth versus um, to let the lawyers determine who wins the argument. Right. To pick a winner. I made some enemies in my first year of law school because we had that discussion, but it was with, it's at an American law school, right? It's with this assumption undergirding it that our system is the superior one and that you're there because you have a fundamental belief in the sort of like sanctity and approach of that system. And again, I had just come from like a really scientific higher ed program, like from a PhD research-based program where I'm like, well, if course he would want to find the truth. And if we know like the accurate answer, and if we know that our current system is leading consistently to inaccurate, unbalanced outcomes, then why do we have this like diehard obsession with a system that we know in some ways is failing and failing intentionally, right? Like it is failing because we have built it to fail. And that's heresy to say, but I think it's important when when we think about 
the courts, especially the civil justice side of things, as a system that people can use to resolve disputes and challenges in their own lives, that, with a few exceptions, should not be adversarial, right? If you're going through a probate, it should not be adversarial. If you're going through a guardianship, it should not be adversarial. If you're going through 50% of divorces, it should not be adversarial. So why are we grafting this on to an adversarial model that relies on gatekept expertise? And I think if, we've, if we really sat down and reconsidered what people need the courts for and how to make sure that they can access a system that works for them, we would draw a really different system. I, I was going to say, like, can we use the fact that the legal system is already backed up with all of these trials as a way of stopping people from abusing the system? Where, like, if we if we made a minimum or I guess a maximum of cases that could be seen in a day, even in very urban areas, could we slow this down enough that it wouldn't make it productive for the people who have lawyers to do this? It's a great question. So. Again, specifically thinking about eviction, what we see is the two the two factors that determine whether eviction is a profitable model profitable model for a landlord to engage in is the speed of the process and the cost of the filing. And it, Oklahoma is not the fastest in the country, and it's not the cheapest in the country, but it's among the fastest and it's among the cheapest. And that combination, it has to be fast and cheap, means we have way more evictions than we should have. So when we're thinking about solutions, you're absolutely right. It's, it's how can we slow down the process without making it inaccessible for people who do need it, right? Like sometimes you do actually just need to remove a tenant. Things are, have gone south and that is, that is a tool that is necessary. But how can we do that in a way that disrupts this sort of profit model that has barnacled on top of it? And there's actually a bill filed this year by John Eccles, HB 2277 that looks at exactly that, at extending the timeline and increasing the filing fee, increasing the cost of filing, filing an eviction that would ideally um, disrupt the approximately 50% of evictions filed in Tulsa County that are arguably predatory and exploitive. So, but how do you balance then with <clears throat> the, we'll say, mom and pop landlord <laughs> that do have an actual issue and need to evict someone. Just a small example. My mom a while back had a house she moved out of and rented it for a little while and had someone moved in who did damage the house, never once paid any rent. And the funny thing was that person clearly had done it before. They knew a lot about the eviction laws in Oklahoma. So it took my mom maybe three, four months to get them physically out of the house. But that was a situation where it really was a situation where my mom, not being a corporate landlord, needed to evict someone. So how do you protect someone in those situations while disincentivizing right. the large corporate cor corporations that are doing it in a predatory way? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the like best features of some of these reforms is so Tulsa County, before the pandemic, the last sort of like really robust numbers that we have, there were 14,000 evictions filed over the course of a year. That's an extraordinary number. I work with people across the country who are in much larger cities 
who will see 4,000 evictions over a year and think that's an incredibly high number. And I'm like, oh, we're half your size and have 10,000 more. It's fine. Don't worry about it. If we're, if we're able to disincentivize some of these large corporate landlords and we take our eviction filing rate in half, all of a sudden people like your mom are not one out of a docket of 100. There may be one out of a docket of 30, which means maybe our judges can take an approach more like there was up in Rogers County where a judge can actually sort of like take time and talk to them and walk them through it and make sure it feels like a fair shake for everybody. Because right now, I think unrepresented landlords absolutely feel just as sort of neglected and dropped through the system as unrepresented tenants because they don't speak the language, because they don't know how to get their time in front of the judge. They don't know how to present evidence. That process is just as much of a mystery. And if we can sort of clear out this predatory clutter, there's space and time to make sure the system is procedurally fair for everybody who's left. Along those lines, I mean, is there a realistic way to have either the law written or have a separate docket for corporate landlords versus individuals? It gets really complicated. So, and not to go down like too much of a rabbit hole, but like the Interstate Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution basically means that you have to treat people the same if they're doing commerce across state Corporations are people. Exactly. Corporations are people. Corporations are people. So it's really hard to treat corporations differently. (laughs) But like th- that's assuming equality and representation, which is not happening. So take that. As you were saying, l- laws are dealt with often in silos. So things that are supposed to work together don't, and they are, you know, litigated separately. So it's not a, you can do this if you also have this. It's like, well, this means this and this means that. And if it, that's, you just look at them separately. Yep. Are you are you almost saying, Chris, that like our constitution has to grow with time and change as society grows? That- Listen, if the founders wanted that, they would have created a mechanism <laughs> for people to be able to change the constitution. Like a very a very easy mechanism that certainly does not get you know waylaid for thirty years because Virginia doesn't want to vote right. on something and hasn't uh, been used twenty six times before. It's fine. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <sighs> um, they- They didn't immediately change the Constitution the second they approved it or anything like that with with 10 amendments. Yeah, like, oh, crap, we forgot these things. Like, uh, (laughs) just think about that in real time. Like, they're like, whoa, whoa, hold on, guys. We're not actually done. We got these 10 (laughs) things which are actually super important that we forgot to include. (laughs) Katie, how can people help you? I love that question. So... All of our work is supported by grants and direct donations. So financial support is always welcome. Our website is okaccesstojustice.org. You can also find us on all the social medias at Oklahoma ATJ. I will say is... Including TikTok? Except for TikTok. Get out of here. I'm not going to be on TikTok. I was just going to ask, like, what funny video could you throw up about this? No. (laughs) If y'all want to come be my social media managers and create a TikTok for me, go for it. But... I got I got talked into finally joining Instagram this fall. So that's how far behind I was. Nice. We are on those. If you're listening to this and you're a lawyer, ask yourself what you're doing to make this better. If you already work at Legal Aid or in the process, God bless you. Thank you so much. If you work in a law firm or, or have your practice, find a way to help. 
take a pro bono case. There is something that you can do to help someone who needs access to the system who is currently blocked out of this. If you are not a lawyer, but you're like, oh my God, this entire system sounds like it's a giant mess and I want to be able to help. We're working on some efforts to, again, sort of actively de-silo and demystify the system. So one of the projects I'm most excited about coming up is called the Oklahoma Community Justice Network. And it's going to train frontline social services staff at community-based organizations across the state in what's called legal first aid. So basically the oh, ability to oh, identify nice. service and net legal needs and walk people through the process and make high quality legal referrals. So if you work at a nonprofit and you think your folks would benefit from that training, hit me up. I would love to connect you. I think that is going to be a phenomenal resource. If you work at a library, public, if any librarians are listening, we did a really awesome project last year called Legal Info in the Libraries, creating infographics and publicly understandable information that is available on the Oklahoma Department of Libraries website. I would love to come do a training with your team um, or think about ways that we can get it out there. And if you have ideas that I'm missing and you're like, Katie, why on earth aren't you doing this? Hit me up on the socials or by email and give me your ideas. <laughs> all of this work is collaborative. And I think it takes all of us working together to find all these spaces that, you know, reflect how people actually live their lives. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Like, I always feel weird taking people away from like the good work they're doing to come chit chat with us. But like, I, I know on occasion it's actually helped set organizations. So I'm hoping this is one of those situations. So. Well, um, thank you guys. So, this and is if nothing been, else. We have some yeah. we have some friends that are librarians that yeah. we'll probably one might live right next door to me. So I will be connecting <laughs> yeah, the two of you. Instance. So huge fan of librarians. <laughs> thank you for all of your service. No, thank you guys so much. This was so fun. I, as you can tell, love talking about this stuff and somehow generally managed to stay optimistic about the work that we can do. Somebody asked me, like, how do I stay positive when everything seems like it's on fire? And I'm like, when everything's on fire, everything you do to make it better helps. It all matters. Yeah. All the pieces matter. It can't get like it can't get any worse, right? It's one of those situations. Oh. <laughs> Don't send that out in the universe. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. That feels sorry. like a challenge, and we're not going to accept it. Yeah, I think I said. Have that, you like, seen some of our legislators listen, in the state of Oklahoma? I think I said in 2016, like it can't, like maybe 2018. I was like, it can't get any worse than this, and I was absolutely wrong. So, yeah. Any predictions pre-pandemic were all wrong. They're all out. They're so, all out. It's fine. Katie, thank you so much. This was great. And hopefully we'll check back in with you again in like a year or so and see how things are going and how you fix the entire legal system. It's so. going to happen. 2023 is the year we're going to fix it all. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you all for listening to our episode with Katie. Please. Even if you've never been in a situation where you've had to go to civil court without a lawyer, people need lawyers. So donate to this organization, check out their resources, do all the things you can do because it sucks when you get screwed over by your landlord and still have a lawyer. Pound for Good can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We are not in court. That's because no one sued us. So, and please don't. So... Thank you, our Constitution and Bill of Rights, for, for allowing me to say these things and not get in trouble. So, as always, Tulsa, get it done, slash, 
Sandar, Sandar Neighborhood Roads, Broken Arrow. I have one Broken Arrow, but like right now. But I'm guessing you're not keeping your shit together. So please do that and be kind to one another. Bye.